they're not worth twice as much as a regular customer. They're probably worth 200 times as much. So it's worth our energy and effort to go find those people. I think that is the secret of all business success to get that relationship right. What you're exceptional at and the people who overvalue what you're exceptional at. When you put those two things together, I don't think there's a limit to what can be accomplished. Plug into the minds of the world's cutting edge innovators, visionaries, and thought leaders who are rewriting the rules of sales and success. It's your time to make an impact. I am your host, Jason Mark Campbell, and this is the Selling with Love podcast. Hi there, listeners of the Selling with Love podcast. This is your host, Jason Mark Campbell. I'm running a little competition as we're trying to get more people to discover this podcast and the work that inspires those to sell with love more. And the best way to do this is to leave reviews, both on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts. And for those of you who leave a review when listening to this episode, I would ask you to take a screenshot of your review and send it to me at jason at jasonmarkcampbell.com. And in doing so, I'm going to give you a set of meditations that you can use to get into the state of selling with love, whether it's connecting with your buyer, affirmations before making calls, or any kind of outreach. These will empower you to be feeling powerful and to be able to do it from a place of love. It is a reward for supporting the show, being a loyal listener, and of course, being able to give more to my amazing audience. Thank you for always showing up, listening, and being inspired by the amazing guests that I get to interview and I get to share their message with you. So again, just leave a review. Take a screenshot of the review. This can be done on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts and email it directly to me, jason at jasonmarkcampbell.com. Thank you, and now let's get started with our episode. Welcome back, everybody, to the Selling with Love podcast. This is your host, Jason Mark Campbell. I don't have one, I have two incredible gentlemen for today, where we're going to be talking about maybe the counter argument around a lot of businesses that tell you that you need to maximize your impact, grow, influence the world, be a change maker, yet maybe this comes with some certain downsides. Maybe there's some pressures that don't need to be there to design the kind of business that makes the impact that you want. So I'm so excited to have Sean Twing and Andre Chaperone, the men behind tiny little businesses, which (laughs) just because it's a tiny little business doesn't mean that it isn't a wildly profitable, fun to operate type of business. And we're going to unpack what that looks like. What are the key components that you should have in place in order to be able to build a successful business at the size that is good for you to achieve the goals that you have set? No cookie cutter solution for any person that's looking to make an impact. And I really love the perspective that we're going to talk about today, which is going to involve a lot of elements of traffic, marketing, sales, and email marketing more particularly. And for those of you who aren't familiar, Andre Chaperone actually known the man for almost 10 years now as the author behind the wildly successful email marketing course called Autoresponder Madness. During my time at Mindvalley, we even had a chance to co-create email marketing intensive as a course. And it was a raving course where people really got to master this element of email marketing. And his business partner, Sean, is joining us as the man who was a 20 or still is a 20 year veteran in digital marketing and the president of Barn Door Media. He is one of the top experts in the world of paid traffic. We will see how they work together, how they grow their business, and what is the key message we have for those of you who want to build this kind of business that is profitable, 
and fun to operate. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you here. That's good to be here. Thanks for having us. Now, I want to kind of bring it up to that premise I kind of introduced it with, which is most gurus, teachers, expert, people in marketing often tell you like, yeah, you have to think big. You have to have a massive impact. You have to influence the planet. And it's always about bigger and bigger. And I find it almost controversial when I hear a term like tiny little businesses. So I'd be very curious as to what inspired you to start focusing on this. And what's the beauty that comes when you go with this goal in mind? So Andre is actually the brain behind the name. <laughs> I came to the name after it was already established. So what I think we'll do is I'll share my perspective on it, which is really almost an outsider's perspective. And then Andre can tell you the actual truth. So, so much business advice, it's kind of like how to build the next Dropbox, right? And that's great if you're going to build the next Dropbox, but that's what 0.00000% of entrepreneurs are actually going to do that. What most entrepreneurs want to do is they want to build a business that provides value for themselves, for the people they care about, for an audience that they care about, and that they're not optimizing to be the next billionaire. I mean, some are, sure, that's not our audience. So when we talk about tiny little businesses, we're not talking about a business that generates $10,000 a year. We might be talking about a business that generates $5 million a year, but it's a business that it has a certain set of characteristics. It's optimized for something other than just scale, 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 and then an equity event where you sell off the business. It's really, it's optimized for the experience, both for the person who owns the business, the people who are operating in the business and the customers of that business. You know, we like to think we are in the business of building happy customer generating machines, but also this is something I don't think I've ever said to Andre. It's an observation that I've had too, is that it's not just making happy customer factories for the customers, but it's also making businesses that produce customers that make you as the business owner happy. They're not always the same thing Because if you've ever had an experience with a business where you attract a lot of customers and they don't make you very happy, it's not a fun business. And anyone who's ever run a free plus shipping book offer knows exactly what it's like when you get an influx of customers who are not making you happy. So that's my perspective on the name. Andre, of course, created the name. So his perspective is certainly much more informed and valuable than mine. Yeah, I think for me, it started off with just being selfish about wanting to build something that I enjoy and I don't enjoy all the big, you know, were you striving to get this? checkbox of doing seven figure launches and then it's okay check and then okay let's see if we can do eight figures now and build a big team i've seen people do that entrepreneurs that are very ambitious i want to you know build a team of 30 people and off they go and they do exactly that and then they realize that actually that wasn't that much fun trying to manage a team of 30 people with payroll and that's just not the sort of business that i've ever wanted to build and so tlb is a reflection of that really so it's how we think about business because tiny is relative. You know, tiny, as Sean said, can be a million dollar business. That's nothing wrong with that. In fact, the Basecamp guys, you know, they've got Basecamp, they've got the Hey Email, they've been around for, I don't know, 20 years now, and their business is massively profitable. They view their business as a tiny business. They don't see it as this thing because they've said no to many, many opportunities that can allow them to go even bigger than they are, turn themselves into a Dropbox, but in doing that, they would violate values that are dear to them. And that is about staying intentionally small. And small, again, that's relative. You know, I haven't had a chance to see it, but I've been seeing the ads for this 
We Crash TV series. I think it's on Apple TV or something, but it's the whole story of WeWork, which was two people that had a vision to build this business and it got crazy in the tens of billions of dollars of valuation, had investors, and then the whole thing collapsed. And I think most of the people that were inside kind of got lost in the craziness of it, the numbers of it, and there was a big you know, misalignment to what they originally had envisioned and what it was becoming, and it was too big, too fast. And it doesn't seem like it's a unique story. You often see people that say, you know, you decide to quit your job to become your own boss, and then you build a company that you find yourself imprisoned by your own company as you continuously chase the scale. And we hear the burnouts, etc. Even I observe companies like, I'll look at Mindvalley, for example, and I have huge admiration for Vishen Lakhiani, but I don't know if that's the kind of business I'd want to build because it demands a lot. It demands a special kind of character. And so when you start dealing with people that are wanting to build a tiny little business, does it appeal to a certain type of person? Or do you see some people that you're, they're like, no, this is not at all what I'd want to do? I think the people we appeal to, just based on a lot of feedback, are people who have been burned elsewhere. They bought into this idea that there's a certain way to do marketing and it's sell, sell, sell. You've got to be out there. And people don't like how that feels. And the reality is, and we talk about this all the time. It's Dean Jackson's research that he's shared publicly that we've seen over and over from our clients and others that if you have a group of people who purchase, so actual buyers over a two-year period, only 15% of the people who buy over a two-year period buy in the first 90 days. So it's absolutely crazy to build a business that tries to optimize for getting people to buy as quickly as possible. Yet most people who come to us are coming to us with the assumption that if they don't get somebody to buy right now, they lose the opportunity. And that is actually not just a little bit wrong, it's 180 degrees wrong. And everything that we do, the way we express it is we say, you know, we emphasize relationships before transactions. And if we build the relationship, we know that the transaction is an emergent property of a really good relationship. And most people who come to us, it seems, the water they've been swimming in, tomorrow, David Foster Wallace's idea of the fish not being aware of the water, the water they're swimming in is the assumption that they have to sell, sell, sell. And then they find us and we're like, selling will take care of itself. Let's talk about how we build relationships. And it's almost a stunned disbelief. And there's this sense we get from a lot of people like, I'm so glad I found you because I hated what it felt like to sell or to do marketing. It shouldn't feel bad. It should feel great. If you have value to contribute to the world, it's a sacred act to share that value with other people. And we treat it like a sacred act. And we don't treat it like a thing that needs to happen to keep the lights on. It's a thing that happens as a result of actually caring about what we do and caring about the people who are engaged with what we do. And everything else follows from that. So it's a long answer to a short question, but that feels like the right answer. Yeah, it's interesting because there's this element of silence when that reframe happens for people that are consuming our stuff. So for example, when they go through Art of Email, the entire first module is all about reframing how they see business or how they should see business, at least from our perspective. And there's all these like moments, these head slapping moments. It's like, oh, okay, now I get it. And then suddenly it starts to make sense because then everything else that we say fits in with that. It's like, oh yeah, okay, now I see why you do it this way. And, you know, selling is emergent to, as Sean said, to focusing and emphasizing relationships first. 
I love it. And, you know, as you know, I'm the selling with love guy. So this is all music to my ears. This is fantastic. This is exactly what I'm trying to preach as well. But I'm often found with this question. So for me, one of the biggest things is I'm tired and I'll use the technical term. I'm tired of seeing douchebag marketers and salespeople making big false promises and under delivering yet they end up getting a big portion of the market because we're all competing for attention. So I was going to ask, do you sometimes feel like, oh my God, because I'm not going out there to get more attention, I'm holding back on bringing in the people that need what you have, but because these call it more shady marketers are really getting their attention, they never get a chance to discover you. How do we reconcile that? What a question. That's the million dollar question, right? If I were smart, I'd just hand it off to Andre and let him answer it so I could have time to think about it. I love the technical terms. So yeah, Andre, you should answer this one. So it gives me time to think. There's two sides to this, I think. And the one is we show up doing what we preach. So everything on the website, before there's any sales, before there's any opt-in, before anything, what you see there is a reflection of how we do marketing. So you get to see the marketing before you actually come into our world. It's all there. So there's certain types of people that will find that and they will wander around this world and it will pull them forward. There'll be stuff that we've said that resonates with people over time and it pulls them forward. So at no point are we trying to convince somebody that has a different narrative. They may have done a certain thing. They're on the website now because things just don't feel right or something feels off or they feel that there's a missing piece somewhere. And then they experience what we have to say and they get pulled towards us. And then there's the other side, you know, we can't be in front of everyone and that's not the point really because many people need to hear or experience this other sort of marketing and then they end up coming to us anyways. So we end up getting some of them anyway and we just do what we do and that pulls the right people forward. Well, I think there's an element here too. Like when I used to, I ran an agency for 21 years, a digital agency, and I used to say, usually not publicly, that USP was that nobody made me look as good as my competitors. So there is a certain element of that here too, that when you get on the, the true internet marketer D-bag, you know, always what's next train. And that's really the thing that's happening that people, they feel it, but they don't have a word for it. And that's really what's happening is this group of marketers who we can use your technical term, what it's always about is what's next. And I know some of them teach it. When you're behind closed doors with them, I've been behind closed doors with a lot of them and worked with a lot of them. What you hear is like, that's the underlying thing. It's always what's next. And you start to feel it. You start to realize like, well, wait a second. I never actually got the value from the thing I just bought. It's now it's always what's coming next, right? There is a group of people who that's actually what they want. They're not our customers, right? They want the dopamine spike of always what's next and spending ever increasing amounts of money to get the thing that's next because it's the dopamine, right? And dopamine's the core driver, right? So, but that's not our audience. Our audience is within that larger audience. Our audience can get sucked up into that thinking that that's the way they need to do it. They can believe the promises, but that's not who we want. We don't want the person who's coming in, who's just looking for the neurochemical spike associated with the next thing that we're going to show them. You know, we tend to attract craftspeople because that's who we are at the end of the day. Andre and I are writers and we're marketers and we love our craft. We've been doing it for over 40 years between us. We, we love the craft of what we do. And we tend to attract people who like the craft and we tend to not attract for very long, 
the people who, you know, as the saying goes, like the sizzle, not the steak. I think that's reasonably accurate. Yeah, I've heard that quote way too many times. And, you know, I've been in the seminar business where we call it junkie. Like it's a seminar junkie vibe where you're always trying to buy the next thing, the next thing. And it's almost sad, but it's almost like the experience you need to go through to realize that it's not the right way. And some people learn it faster than others. But one of the things that could be an overcorrection, because I've often seen people go in that path and then from there, they're like, I don't want to sell at all. I don't want to market at all. And they almost throw away the baby with the bathwater. And I think this would be a more directed to you, Sean, question, which is now that I know I want to operate out of integrity, you know, be valuable, show up, deliver amazingly. But I look at something like paid ads and I'm like, well, I don't need to run ads. I'm an incredible business and they will just come to me. How do you usually respond to this kind of mindset? And is it even a good mindset or a bad one? That's very common and certainly one that is completely understandable, especially if you spend any time on a platform like Facebook, which Facebook comments are absolutely miserable. And it can be incredibly demoralizing to put an ad out in the world where you have the best of intentions, and then there's no barrier to snark. In many ways, the platforms reward it. So that can be miserable. You know, I've run somewhere in the neighborhood of $100 million worth of paid traffic over my career, mostly on Google and Facebook, overwhelmingly. I mean, those two engines represent about 85 to 95% of reach on the internet. So those, you know, when they asked Willie Sutton, the bank robber, judge said, Willie, why do you rob banks? He said, that's where the money is. So when someone says they run paid traffic, why do you run paid traffic on Google and Facebook? And that's where the traffic is. There's a liberating moment that happens with paid traffic that is about control, meaning that instead of being subject to the world around us, subject to word of mouth, subject to being invited on podcasts, subject to all of these external factors, when paid traffic works well, we then have our hands on a dial. And if we have a program we want to fill, we can turn the dial up. If we have a program that we want to build a buffer in, a little bit of a waiting list, for example, so that we're not feeling like when somebody leaves a group, for example, that we that now we have to go fill it. We can do all kinds of things with paid traffic because it places the control of our business in our hands. Not solely. Traffic is part of, you know, Andre and I talk about we're systems theorists and a business emerges from the interaction of three forces, awareness, engagement, and conversion. The business is the thing that it's not any one of those things, but it has to have all of those things. And what we think of as a business is not something you can actually create. It emerges from the interactions from those three forces. And awareness is critical. You know, some people get their awareness on, you know, they do Twitter really well and they have a huge following and they can generate awareness that way. Great. It doesn't have to be paid traffic, but the ability to say, I'm going to put $10 in and get a reasonably predictable result every time I do it is one of the most liberating things a small business owner can do. It's a type of power that you can't understand until you've experienced it and you realize it's a shocking feeling to be able to have that level of control and it puts the locus of control back in the business owner's hands and that's critical. I want to follow up with that, Sean. So for anybody who has a small business, has built some elements, some products, but ads just seems like so inaccessible. It's like, oh, getting into the AdWords platform is intimidating. Facebook is intimidating. Do you have any rule of thumb? Like, is it like, just go in there and like blow money to learn it? Or do you have a bit of a <laughs> prescription for people that want to get started with this? And they're like, hey, I want to just get over the fear. What resources should I go to? Right before we became business partners, it was the start of COVID. And for two years, we had been talking about a paid traffic course to complement the work that Andre had already done with lead generation, with email marketing. 
we created at the time what we call the traffic engine, which is now part of our larger course called the modern marketing system. That was the question I was trying to answer with that course. And it, at a fundamental level, there are two ways to think about paid traffic. And on our website, on tinylittlebusinesses.com, there's a free, no opt-in required sort of 10-day course on paid traffic that I would encourage your listeners to go to look at. You can just go read the whole thing. It was really my best thinking about paid traffic before we released the course. The two ways to think about paid traffic are you do a lot of things and then you try to figure out what's not working and remove it. And that's expensive, expensive in time, energy, and dollars. Or the strategy that I always used as a default, and I didn't really know that was the strategy I was using when I was running an agency, was that I would try to start with the thing that seemed most likely to work. And if I couldn't get that to work, then I wouldn't try something else because it's illogical to think that if you find a perfect audience and they don't convert, that you could somehow convert an imperfect audience. So just as a reference point, I would generally, and this is what I would teach, starting with a what I call a bullseye search term, which is something I borrowed from Glenn Livingston, and a bullseye search that represents something that your ideal prospect would be searching for. So for example, if you sell red widgets online with free shipping, somebody who searches for buy red widgets online free shipping is an ideal prospect. And if you can't convert that person, someone who searches for just buy widgets, unlikely to convert them. But what I see most people do is they go out and say, well, I want a lot of traffic. So they're like, well, we'll just bid on terms like buy widgets or widgets. And then they spend a lot of money only to realize that a tiny fraction of that audience was actually ideal for them. And then they say, eh, AdWords didn't work or Facebook didn't work. So that maps directly to Facebook traffic too. If you know that you have an audience of people who are personal development junkies and they're interested, you know, there are two or three authors that you know they read because you hear them talk about it all the time, whatever it is. Start there, start with ideal and see if you can convert ideal, because if you can't convert ideal, you can't convert suboptimal. That's just logic. And that focus has so many downstream benefits. You get much better data, you get much better data faster. You can iterate towards success faster. I mean, everything works when you do it one way, nothing works when you do it the other, unless you get really lucky. I don't want to be in a business that's dependent on me getting really lucky all the time. It doesn't seem wise. So what I love from what you said, Sean, is understanding that, listen, traffic still needs to come in. Ads is the best one to have control over it. It's predictable. And especially when you're looking on the search side is you want to get to bullseye first and then expand, do your testing from there. And then you talk a bit about the Facebook side, which is more about the people, right? It's not about what they're searching, but who exactly you're trying to serve, which is why I wanted to kind of slide you in, Andre, because I know from the courses I've taken with you, you speak about being so intimate and so specific on who exactly you serve. And I wanted you to speak a bit more to the importance of that because more times than none, when I'm having conversations, I say like, okay, who do you serve? They're like, well, anybody, anybody who can buy my thing, I'm ready to serve them all. And there's something that changes when you start going down the road, like what you explain. And I'd love for you to open our minds to this. Yeah. This goes back to something that Sean said earlier on as well, but we get to choose who we do business with. So at least for me, that's how it's always started. There's a certain group of people, which is people like me who overvalue the stuff that I'm interested in and the way that I see the world. And then, you know, that's the starting point for me. So 
some people will start with the product and then as you said jason well how many people can i find in the world that can buy this thing so that's another version but yeah for me it all started with just expressing certain things on the website that resonated with the sort of person that i know this is perfect for and it is not perfect for even more people than it is perfect for so the segment of people who it's perfect for is smaller and i'm okay with that because i don't want people that i can't serve with the product that i have because you know they come in they check it out they refund and they leave and they go in back to the old ways and getting dopamine sparks wherever they can get it from so i think that's the very high level where we start we have a free course that's available to all of our customers and we really unpack this in fact this is Sean's work where we unpack this entire framework of how to think about who you going after and really externalize that do the work it's hard deep work it can take weeks <laughs> and then that's the starting point and then once you know that everything becomes easier after that or easier well, there's an interesting book where i saw this in it sometimes things you read it you know in the moment everything just changed but you don't know how it changed and then years later you realize how it changed but i i think if i take 23 years of experience running my own business or working in partnership with somebody else i've taught entrepreneurship at college level for four years i take all of those things and if i could distill it down to a single idea the thing that makes something successful or not the idea is from a book called diamonds really difficult book but an incredible book d-i-a-m-i-n-d-s like diamond mines is the idea but in passing in that book they mentioned that and i don't even remember the context but it was this idea that success comes from putting the things that you do exceptionally well adjacent to the people who overvalue those things and that's really, I think, the answer to your question here. You know, Andre uses the term pocket of people. He's known for that. So if you think about there's a pocket of people out in the world who it's not that they value what you do, like that they're willing to pay for it. It's that they overvalue what you do. And it could be in a moment. Like it could be something like someone's traveling to a foreign country. Say someone's traveling to Italy as an exchange student. There are like three or four things they need to understand before they go. And you've done that thing. And for the people who are about to do the thing that you've done, that you know, you are exceptionally valuable to them, more so than you would be to someone who isn't traveling to Italy or might travel in the future or whatever, but it's that connection. And when you get that right, the example I use a lot is I could work for a local pizzeria and increase their sales with my skill set by, say, 20%. So let's just say for the sake of argument, they make $100,000 a year already, and they say to me, we want to pay you to increase our sales by 20%, I can make them $20,000. So that's the value I create. What are they willing to give me in return? Well, not the $20,000, right? That would be foolish. Maybe let's say for the sake of argument, they're willing to give me half. So I get $10,000 or I could take the same skill set and do work, which I have done with enormous direct response marketers who are spending hundreds of millions of dollars. And I might be able to increase with the same skill set, their sales by 2%, which totals 20, $30 million. What am I worth to them? Right? Because that audience, the second audience, overvalues my expertise. And if I could do that for them, it's incredibly valuable. That I think is what, especially with a small business, 
it's really easy to go out and find the people like, oh, who's willing to pay for this? This is my audience. No, no. Who is likely to be an evangelist for what you're doing? Because not only will they buy what you're doing, they'll buy everything that you're doing and they'll tell everybody about it. They're not worth twice as much as a regular customer. They're probably worth 200 times as much. So it's worth our energy and effort to go find those people. I think that is the secret of all business success to get that relationship right. What you're exceptional at and the people who overvalue what you're exceptional at. When you put those two things together, I don't think there's a limit to what can be accomplished. Yeah, that's the mock drop moment there. <laughs> I have a Solid. mic. Well, we only have one mic on screen for those who are listening. The other mics are off screen. But I'm just going to say this is wisdom that doesn't need to overcomplicate itself. Like it goes back to the foundations. And this is really what I love from what you teach is not only do you have this concepts that really move the needle, but at the same time, you're doing it with an energy that isn't about like, how do you squeeze the customer? How do you like go out and just do everything that tricks people into moving somewhere? And it appeals to a certain type of person, but it's not even the kinds of people that you would enjoy working with. And so I very much admire the business that you've built. You have amazing products, amazing things that are available for people for free. So if you're listening to this, there's so much more you can unpack, whether it's about email marketing or traffic by going to tinylittlebusinesses.com. A link will be made available in the show notes. And I love this conversation. And I always love to end with a question for, I'll ask both of you individually. And I'll say, Andre, you'll be the first one to answer which is you're on the selling with love podcast. So I just want to ask, you know, point blank, what does selling with love mean to you? It means connecting the right person with the product that we know can serve them, like ridiculously serve them. And we turn away many people, not just because there's no button to make a purchase. People will have conversations with us over email. And we'll either turn them away and in some cases give them access for free, which is not something I should be saying publicly on a podcast. But, you know, we do because some people can't afford this thing, but this thing is going to help them so much. So some people, we just let them in and say, you know, at some point in the future, you know, you can always come back and pay then. But for now, you've got access. And I think that's what it's all about. It's about relationships. And how about you, Sean? I'm glad I got a little time to think about this one. Yeah, I think for me, I tend to think in frameworks. So for me, when I hear this, you know, selling with love, I tend to think about it from a 10,000 foot perspective. So what Andre said, I think is at the core of it, that I want to wake up every day. I want to love what I'm creating. I want to love the questions that I have in mind, like the things I want to do next. I'm focused here. So the initial part of the framework is my love for the craft is at the end of the day, I am a craftsman and I know what craft is. I'm a furniture maker as well. And I've worked with some of the best furniture makers in the world and that's visible craft. But what we do is craft as well. And the, the crafting of campaigns, the crafting of emails, the crafting of words, we take that very seriously. But I think way beyond that is this ability to love not just what we're doing, but the person on the other side, right? Not in a way that I could feel attention when I described this because there are customers we have who I interact with directly. So I feel like I know that person. And then there are customers we interact with more digitally where there's sort of an avatar of that person. I don't know that person very well. But to recognize that every one of them is a person and 
that there's a humanity there that makes us peers, that we're side by side. I think that's it. And I had this conversation with one of the members of our elite coaching group the other day about when he was writing, he wanted feedback in something he had written. And what I wanted him to understand was that he was talking to another human being who he was going to then stand with side by side and go on this journey with them. And in that metaphor, I realized that's really at the center of what I love about what we do is that we're not trying to be the sage on the stage, spewing wisdom at everybody else. What we're trying to do is we're trying to take people on a journey that we've been on for over two decades apiece and say, if you want to go on this journey, we can tell you where some of the quicksand is. We can tell you some of the things that we've learned along the way, but we're not going to talk at you. We're going to stand shoulder to shoulder with you. We're going to treat you as an equal because we all are at this level of humanity. We might have a different set of expertise, a different set of experience, but we're not that different from somebody else. And the beauty of this business and of my relationship with Andre and how we, what we've done is that if you meet us in person, we are exactly the same as who we are when you read our emails. And that's important to me because it's uncommon. I've, and I'm sure you've experienced this too, that I've met people who have a persona and you realize that that persona is not who they are. And when you see them behind the closed door, they're a very different person. One of the things I love about what we do is that if you engage with us in any capacity, you're going to find out that we're exactly who you thought we were. And that was my biggest fear when Andre and I became business partners was like, oh no, what if he really isn't the way I think he is? Because it happened so many times. So I think that's a very long answer to a short question, but love of the craft, love of your audience, love of the work that we get to do and love of all the things we don't know. Cause there's so much, and we've been at this a long time and there's so much that I want to learn still. Like every day, is an opportunity for me to go get better at this thing that's meaningful to me and then share it with other people in a way that's not preachy and is not, you know, I know this and you don't. It's more like, here's what I think. Here's why I think it. Let's go on this journey together. That to me, that feels like love. Sean, Andre, this has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing with us. Honestly, for everybody listening, there's so much more you can dig into when you go to tinylittlebusinesses.com. And the big takeaways here is you got to be clear on exactly what you're looking to create. You might be hearing about making these like seven figure, eight figure businesses, but it requires different challenges and it allows you to grow into a certain type of person that you need to check in with yourself if that's even what you want. And there's immense gold and riches and lifestyle choices that come from deciding to go for tiny little business as a framework or as an idea. And I think one of the biggest things I love about choosing this is it becomes much more clear on the integrity of what you want to build based on the values you have and the person you want to be for the customers you attract. Traffic, paid traffic, all the ways of marketing still exist, but you get to do it with a level of finesse that doesn't bend the rules or compromise on your values. You still hold true to your integrity. Not to say that if you grow the business, you're going to be out of integrity, but you'll see that there's a lot more external forces that start being at play. I love the whole ideology of it. I love everything that you teach from a marketing and sales perspective, both Sean and Andre in tiny little business. So I urge everyone to go and discover more. Uh, this has been absolutely fantastic. And thank you for sharing all the wisdom on the show, gentlemen. It was a fantastic one. And for everybody else listening, keep selling with love and maybe building a tiny little business will be exactly how you do so. 
I am your host, Jason Mark Campbell, and this is the Selling with Love podcast. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.